the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushduni. In lieu of the judgment of God across this nation, I appeal to you to listen, learn, and live as the Holy Spirit guides you in the truth of the Word of God. The words and prompting of fallible men do not hold a candle to the truth of Scripture, and the truth of Scripture will only be words to our ears unless we exhort, establish, and exercise these infallible words in every area of thought and life. Calcine Report Number 66, February 1971 No society has yet existed without its share of lower-class people, that is, persons who are incapable of a future-oriented life and who are often parasitic in their living. Very often, the number of upper- and middle-class minds in a culture has been very limited, a thin strata of future-oriented and planning minds governing and directing the vast majority of men. The remarkable progress of Western civilization in the 19th century was due to the fact that great numbers of people moved into the ranks of the middle and upper classes. Society was radically altered. Instead of a limited number of men governing a culture, an increasing number of self-governing and foresighted men were rapidly expanding the potentialities of man and society in every area of life. The result was a great era of progress. The ranks of the lower classes of Western countries shrank markedly, especially in the United States, where society, as the community of men whose vision was a prosperous, developing, and expanding future, came close to including most men, and in some areas, almost all. The American mission of, quote, manifest destiny, unquote, was to spread civilization, religion, and liberty to every corner of the continent, if not the whole world. See Frederick Merck, Manifest Destiny and Mission in American History, New York, Knopf, 1963. The school was a very important aspect of this vision. A future-oriented people believed emphatically that education was basic to a people with a mission. The purpose of the schools, from grammar school on through the university, was to educate for leadership, to prepare the man for the future for his responsibilities. Schooling meant dignity and a status. Commencement exercises were a great joy to parents, especially of immigrant children. The student had now advanced a step towards the upper class, into the ranks of those who govern rather than are governed. Men shared a vision of a world transformed by religion, education, and free enterprise into a realm of liberty and progress in which all men dwelled together in contentment and prosperity. It is easy to criticize various aspects of this vision today, but the fact remains that the 19th century did witness vast strides in conquering age-old problems of human society. There was not only a very extensive material progress, but one of the greatest advances in Christian missions in history.
Today, however, a very real cultural counterforce is in operation. The ranks of the lower classes are again growing because of the collapse of the upper and middle classes. Civilizations decay when the leadership falters and fails, when its upper class abdicates its responsibilities or abandons its character. The school, as the agency of creating the upper and middle classes of the modern era, has become the great mass producer of a lower class mentality, of a present-oriented generation. The modern academic community presents an ironic picture. On the one hand, there are monumental buildings and beautiful grounds which echo the old vision of planning and order. On the other hand, there are the unkempt minds and bodies of the faculty and student body to set forth the new contempt for the old order. It is as if a barbarian horde has captured the temples of an ancient faith. Some curious facts confirm the change. The intellectual today is more susceptible to propaganda than are other people. There is also a correlation between vulnerability to hypnosis and education. Instead of strengthening the mind for leadership, education today weakens it and makes a man a better follower. Occultism, astrology, and other forms of ancient superstitions have had a ready receptivity among educated peoples. Whereas once the educated man derided these things, today he tends to show interest in them and promote them. More and more universities are adding courses on magic, astrology, and other superstitions to their curriculum. What has happened? Why have the schools created to educate an upper and middle class become the great creators of new barbarians of the most powerful lower class in history? The reason lies in the studied rootlessness of modern education. Because the intellectual is at war with biblical faith, he is at war with the past. He rejects it as lacking his own enlightenment. In terms of modern thought, enlightenment begins by denial of God. This denial of God is accompanied by an assertion of the autonomy of man and his reason, his mind, and this autonomy means a deliberate rootlessness, a calculated severing of ties with the past. In other cultures, the lower class mind was rootless because it was too poorly educated to have root in the past and too indifferent religiously to think and plan in terms of a religious faith. As a result, such a lower class mind cuts itself off from the past and from the future by default. The new lower class of the modern intellectuals cuts itself off from the past by choice, by a revolutionary choice and act and is more rootless than any previous lower class. This rootlessness is reinforced by its philosophical existentialism, its exaltation of the moment, of the present, and its attempts to cut off that existential moment from any influence from the past and from any fear of future event. As a result, the intellectuals are rapidly becoming the most truly lower class element civilization has yet seen. Not only is there a rootlessness grounded in philosophical principle, but also an emotional hatred. The intellectual refuses to see himself as a true child of his past. As Molnar has pointed out, with reference to Sartre, he sees himself as a, quote, bastard, unquote, 
an outcast and an enemy to the past. The bastard mentality, anti-bourgeois, revolutionary, nonconformist, and perpetually at war is made into the modern hero by the intellectuals. More than a hero, he is also seen as the new prophet. Quote, the new philosopher abandons the traditional role of the teacher and assumes that of the prophet. Unquote. Instead of investigating and communicating immutable truths, this bastard prophet gives a vision of a new world which depends on the ruin of the present order. Thomas Molnar, Sartre, Ideologue of Our Time, New York, Funk and Wagnalls, 1968. This vision is a vision of hate, and even love is defined as hate by Sartre. In Les Diables et les Bondus, Sartre defined love as the, quote, hatred of the same enemy, unquote. To love is simply to be united in hatred of God and His order. Not surprisingly, the new barbarians like Lenin, Trotsky, Stalin, Hitler, Mayo, Castro, and others emphasize not truth and justice in establishing a new order, but the power of, quote, charisma, unquote, miraculous power by commanding personalities. C. L. Clark Stevens, E.S.T., The Steersman Handbook, page 130, Santa Barbara, Capricorn Press, 1970. The goal is freedom, but freedom as defined by Hitler and Stalin is not a freedom as defined by Christ. Almost 30 years ago, de Rougemont saw clearly what freedom had become for modern man. Quote, for most of my contemporaries, liberty is the right not to obey. When they are given this right, they are bored and clamor for a tyrant. Unquote. Dennis de Rougemont, The Devil's Share, page 97, New York, Pantheon Books, 1944. This is it exactly. For an upper-class mind, freedom is the opportunity to plan and work realistically for future goals and to create a personal and social order in terms of those goals. Freedom becomes the condition for work and planning. It has a function in terms of the present and the future. For the lower-class mind, freedom is, quote, the right not to obey, unquote and the right to disrupt and destroy an order that requires obedience. Obedience is a future-oriented virtue. Children are taught obedience because they must be schooled into living with reality and mastering it. Dictatorships require obedience from their subjects in order to further their plans for the present and the future. Obedience comes into its own in a free society where men, by an inner discipline, commit themselves to practical work and planning for the future. Such men maintain this discipline in the face of disappointments and frustrations because the ability to use failures and setbacks profitably is an aspect of their future-oriented nature. Philosophically, therefore, our schools today are grave diggers, committed by principle to destroying the past and to denying that God's absolute laws governs man's past, present, and future. Dr. Timothy Leary is a true product of the modern university and has a natural appeal to a generation educated into the rootlessness he represents. In a New York meeting, Leary once declared, quote, We do not pray to anyone up there but to what is inside ourselves. 
Let us go back and free the world from good and evil. Then we are all through with the good evil thing, and you will be reborn." Unquote. Diana Trilling, quote, celebrating with Dr. Leary, unquote, Encounter, June 1967. This is the dream. Dispense with good and evil, with all absolute law, and live as, quote, free, unquote, men in a world where moral law, economic law, all law is destroyed in favor of, quote, free, unquote, man, man with the total right not to obey. As men face a world collapsing around them because the lower class mind, like a plague, is infecting old and young, they have two ways out. First, they can retreat into pessimism and despair. They can recognize the hopelessness of dealing with lower class minds and surrender. This is easy to do. A particularly vicious young hoodlum was killed by police recently in a gun battle. The record of violence by this teenage criminal was a serious one. The mother, with no criminal record, is proving herself even more depraved than her son. She is demanding action against the police who fought in self-defense for killing her murderous son. Her son could rob, maim, and murder as a part of his right not to obey but she refuses to recognize the right of the police to require obedience to the law and to use force to protect the law, innocent victims, and themselves. Such an attitude becomes daily more prevalent. It is easy to become discouraged, but to surrender is in effect to deny God. It is to deny that He is on the throne and that, quote, of the increase of His government and peace there shall be no end, unquote. Isaiah 9, 7. The second course is the realistic one, to rebuild. Are the schools our grave diggers? Then we must build new schools. Already, every year, more and more children and youth are being educated in Christian schools and into a biblical perspective. The future belongs to those who prepare for it, not to those who destroy it or who fear it. Only as future-oriented men, men of God, begin each in their calling to rebuild all things in terms of their faith. Can there be any restoration or direction to history? We will never regain that direction if we wait for the majority to join us. We are then only weather-vane men, incapable of doing more than responding to the winds of history. We shall be driven instead of driving. We will then, whatever our professed faith, have joined the lower class. The reconstruction of schools, families, churches, civil governments, and vocations will be accomplished only as men under God feel that they have no other alternative but to act. Then by faith, as free men whose calling it is to command the future for God, they will, a step at a time, accomplish His purposes in history. Calcedon Report Number 67 March, 1971. American Indians are the subject of much romance as well as much prejudice, so that it is often difficult to make a realistic appraisal of their cultures. So much in Indian history suggests remarkable abilities. Men like Joseph Brandt, Tecumseh, Chief Joseph, and others were clearly men of rare abilities. On the other hand, despite evidences of a superior genetic inheritance, Indians are on the lowest level of American society all too often. Very early, 
Indians showed an amazing ease of adaptability. They recognized the horror Europeans in America felt towards their cannibalism and torture, and they readily took on the moors of their surrounding settlers. They usually showed, however, an inability to unite. They were divided into hostile and warring tribes, and within each tribe the various bands were often more uncongenial to one another than to the European settlers. Then, too, despite their intelligence and ease at adaptation, they failed to develop beyond a certain point, and in all too many cases became a part of the lowest class in American life. It is important for us to understand the central cause of this failure, because it is very closely related to the rapid slide of all America and Western civilization into a lower class status. Indian cultures had a fairly uniform concept of child rearing. As Wallace has noted of the Seneca Indians of the colonial era, early observers noted that, quote, parental tenderness, unquote, was carried to a, quote, dangerous indulgence, unquote. Punishment was lacking, and, quote, mothers were quick to express resentment of any constraint or injury or insult offered to the child by an outsider, unquote. Moreover, quote, such control as the child obtained over its excretory functions was achieved voluntarily, not as a result of consistent punishment for mistakes. Early sexual curiosity and experimentation were regarded as a natural childish way of behaving, out of which it would in due time grow, unquote. Page 35. Freedom was important to the Senecas and other Iroquois, quote, the intolerance of externally imposed restraints, the principle of individual independence and autonomy, the maintenance of an air of an indifference to pain, hardship, and loneliness. All these were the negative expression, as it were, of the positive assertion that wishes must be satisfied, that frustration of desire is the root of all evil. Unquote. Anthony F. C. Wallace, The Death and Rebirth of the Seneca page 74, italics added, New York, not 1970. The situation has not greatly changed since then, as I can witness having spent eight and a half years on an Indian reservation among two western tribes. I never saw a frustrated Indian child. Perhaps an Indian baby cried at some time, but I cannot recall it. The baby or child was fed when it wanted to be fed. It was not denied, but rather indulged at every turn. The love for and delight in children was real and sometimes moving, although it was obvious how unhappy the consequences of that indulgent love were. I found the Indians a lovable people, of real ability and more than a little charm, but the permissiveness of their society guaranteed their continuing unhappy and low estate. An unfrustrated child is inescapably in for trouble. It is impossible to live in a fallen world where conflict of wills is a daily problem and a minor one in the face of our major world and local problems without having frustrations. Discipline in childhood is a schooling in frustration and a training in patience and work. Discipline not only prepares us for frustration but gives us the character to work towards overcoming frustration. Permissiveness in child-rearing thus avoids frustrating the child only to ensure continual frustration for the adult. 
The reaction of the Indian to frustration from very early times was escapism, and alcoholism was a major form of such a retreat. The more the Indian met frustration, the more readily he became an alcoholic. It was at the request of Indian leaders who were aware of their people's weakness that prohibition of liquor for Indians, now repealed, was legislated at the beginning of the last century. In American society at large today, the same permissiveness in child-rearing prevails. Earlier, alcoholism was more often linked among white Americans to an intense perfectionism. Such alcoholics were, or are, very capable, hard-working men frustrated because they make too great a demand of themselves and life. Now, increasingly, the alcoholic is a product of permissiveness, of his or her inability to accept a world of frustration and overcome it. Instead of too much drive, it reveals a lack of drive. Similarly, sexual immorality was and is a serious problem in Indian life. Indians who deplore it are often guilty of it, but they find themselves too weak of will to maintain the standard of fidelity they admit is best. As a result, Indian family life is regularly shattered by dissension and conflict. The inability to deny themselves lends to greater unhappiness and frustration. Increasingly, too, American life as a whole sees a like pattern. Permissiveness in the home, church, and school has created an undisciplined people who feel that freedom is licensed and that degeneracy is health. A popular singer expressed the feeling of the age in a half-sobbing song which said at one point, quote, Don't deny me, unquote. A common consequence of permissive societies is a high suicide rate. Suicide is the ultimate in self-frustration. Anyone who has talked with would-be suicides knows how intense their self-pity is. Sometimes their problems are very real, and at other times appallingly trivial. In either case, there is an inability to accept frustration and an overwhelming self-pity that should bring them to such a pass. Suicide is historically very common among American Indians, and some have seen this as evidence that their origin is in the Orient. Rather, it is a mark of their permissive culture, and as religious faith has declined in Western civilization, and as a permissive humanistic society has grown, Suicide has increased. A permissive society lacks the capacity to overcome problems because it retreats into liquor, narcotics, peyote among the Indians, sexual immorality, and a criminal and revolutionary rage whenever frustrated. Dr. Nathan Ackerman, whose viewpoint is not ours, in commenting on the Great Depression, remarked, quote, In those days, regardless of impoverishment, there was more constraint of behavior. I cannot imagine looting 35 years ago. Despite want, the patterns of authority prevailed. Today, those standards have exploded. Looting and rioting have become sanctioned behavior in many communities, unquote. Studs Terkel, Hard Times and Oral History of the Great Depression, page 219, New York, Pantheon Books, 1970. We thus have today a more affluent society than ever before, 
yet less capable of accepting frustration than ever before. As a result, we now have what Dr. Gunther Stent has called, quote, a view of the end of progress, unquote. Progress is an impossibility where there is no patient work to overcome obstacles and to improve on things. Both revolutionary rage and narcotics represent forms of escapism, of a refusal to cope with problems constructively, and both are evidences of a lower-class mentality. One of the problems facing anyone who works with people today, young and old, is this radical lack of discipline and the lack of ability to meet frustrations realistically and to overcome them. The desire of most people is to walk away from problems, but nothing does more to increase the problems inherent in a society and constant to a man's life than the refusal to meet them head-on and then work patiently to overcome them. To ask for a trouble-free, unfrustrated life is to ask finally for death, and before death, a lower class, slave status. Slavery has been a constant problem in history. Many slaves have been victims of kidnapping and war, but many more have been victims of their own demand for security. As Sir William M. Ramsey long ago pointed out, the Romans wanted slavery. Serfdom began on the imperial estates. Quote, the paternal government was salvation, unquote. In fact, the entire concept of salvation was in essence a form of slavery to the emperor. Quote, the salvation of Jesus and Paul was freedom. The salvation of the imperial system was serfdom, unquote. Sir W.M. Ramsey, The Bearing of Recent Discovery on the Trustworthiness of the New Testament, pages 191 through 198, London, Hodder and Stoughton, 1920. This is no less true today. The salvation of modern man is some form of socialism, some form of slavery to the state. The state is asked to guarantee man against frustrations and is given increasing powers for that purpose. The more the state does, however, the deeper the discontent grows, because a permissive culture intensifies frustration as it increases gratification, because it thereby decreases man's ability to bear up under any kind of inhibition or trouble. Today, people increasingly, quote, fall apart, unquote, under less and less tension and trouble. Like the Senecas, they see frustration of desire as the root of all evil, and short of becoming themselves God, they are inescapably doomed to frustration by their human estate. Christian reconstruction thus begins in the home with godly discipline. The influence of biblical law on Hebrew life and society was an important factor in their society, and the lingering respect for and obedience to that law has given Jews an advantage in Western history. The advantage of that law discipline was once basic to all Western civilization, but it is now being rapidly eroded. An upper class is the product of a law and discipline which gives it a practical future-oriented perspective. Too often, however, such a class, having arrived at power, seeks, quote, liberation, unquote, from discipline by living for the moment, by treating immorality as a prerogative of wealth and power. As a result, it cuts the vital nerve of its power and rapidly declines into a lower class mentality, which is easily toppled by any serious challenge. Wallace reports that in 1657, the Jesuit chronicler, of the Iroquois mission wrote, quote, 
There is nothing for which these peoples have a greater terror than restraint. Unquote. Page 38. Much of the same can be said of modern man today. Freedom is seen as freedom from law, not freedom under law. Man's life then becomes a study in irrelevance, in an evasion of reality, because his concept of freedom is destructive and negative, not positive and constructive. Not truth, but satisfaction then concerns man. Edward Dahlberg, in The Carnal Myth, 1968, wrote, quote, Ultimately, it is only style that is important, unquote. This is the concept of writing with Dahlberg. With many, it is the program for life. Thus, in fine style, they march towards death and the ultimate frustration. Let the dead bury the dead. Those who self-consciously make themselves a lower class encumber the earth. They are suicidal, and they shall perish. Meanwhile, there is a social order to be reconstructed, frustrations to overcome, troubles ahead to be met and solved, and much hard work to do. This is the way of life and of true joys also. Those who run out on problems have abandoned life. Have you? The implications of this came to focus not too long ago on a television program. The master of ceremonies was talking to young school children, asking each in turn what they considered the best age to be. When he came to one little girl and asked, quote, And what age would you like to be? Unquote. She answered, quote, A baby. Unquote. The surprised master of ceremonies asked, quote, Why? Unquote. Quote, because then people do everything for you. Unquote. This is the modern dream, and even little children have caught it, to be an unfrustrated modern baby in a total permissive world. A neighbor of an internationally famous film director currently in America reported that it was not the nude sunbathing or strolling which surprised her at this beach colony. The surprise was in other areas. The totally nude young mistress of the film director sunbathed with a pacifier in her mouth. At least the builders of Babel said, quote, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, unquote. Genesis 11:4, The city of man. The builders of the modern Babel are working instead to build the city of the baby, the kingdom of the child. They are working to create a social order which will serve as a grand pacifier for all our self-made babies. So you don't like problems, troubles, and frustrations? Join the babies. You will have lots of company, and buy yourself a pacifier and go to bed. Get out of the way. The rest of us have work to do. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he assures by his paying the very price. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me. Serves we should to Jesus.
Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.